Let the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. During the Second World War, two British soldiers were walking through the burned-out ruins of a village in northern France. Clambering over the remains of the parish church, one of them picked up a broken statue of Jesus, held it in his hand, and turned to his companion and said, This is what happens when man is big and God is small. When we pray, Hallowed be thy name, we are asking that God will be big again, and that he will take control. For God's name to be hallowed, it must be kept holy or separate. It must be honoured and revered, not just in words, but in our actions and our lifestyle as well. His name and character must have top place in the human hearts and in the world that he loves. Now the name was very, very important uh, in ancient Hebrew. It referred to the essence, the power, the character, the personality and very nature of the person being named. It's not surprising, therefore, that the name of our God was greatly hallowed. In the Ten Commandments, we're instructed, you shall not make a wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. In other words, be respectful. Keep in tune with the kind of God he really is. And in the wonderful story of the burning bush, Moses asked God, will you tell me who you are? What is your name? And God said to him, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be because there's not much difference at this stage in the development of the human language between the present tense and the future tense. In other words, just watch me in action, see what I do, and then you'll begin to understand the kind of God I am. Don't try and limit me. Don't capture me in your words, your definitions, or your understandings. Just be content to know that I exist and that I do what I know will be best, for I am the God of surprises. So open yourself to me, for there's so much more for you to discover. So when we hallow the name of God, we seek to give him the unique place which his nature, character, and personality demand. It is to offer the worship of our lives rather than just speaking the correct words. To pray, hallowed be thy name, is a way of saying, Lord, let me today worship and revere you in all that I am and all that I do. So how then can we really hallow the name of God? Firstly, we hallow the name of God when our worship reflects his glory. It was the great theologian Karl Barth who described Christian worship as the most momentous, the most urgent, the most glorious action that can take place in human life. 
he saw it as communion with the infinite, as a living encounter with God. So, judged by that kind of standard, our worship often leaves a lot to be desired. For if our prayer and worship really is to be real, it must always focus on God, and he must remain the captivating centre of our lives and our consciousness. But we're also taught to pray in the name of Jesus. In other words, in accordance with the very nature of the personality of Jesus, in tune with his perfect will. We are asking that our prayers should be in tune with his nature, and therefore we dare not pray anything that would be unworthy of him. A speaker who often spoke on thought for the day um, actually spoke a word and got a letter a couple of days later. And the letter said, Dear Sir, I strongly disagree with everything you said in thought for the day. This week, I am praying for your death. I have been successful in three other cases. <laughs> Please don't pray for mine, will you? Such prayers may well be the workings of a tormented mind, but because they do not refer and reflect to his nature, they can never be described as prayer in the name of Jesus. So the first thing then is our worship must reflect his glory. It must always stress God, focus on God, and reflect the very nature of God, especially as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. And the second thing that helps us hallow the name of God is that our understanding, our conception of God, must be authentically Christian. In the early days of my ministry, when I was chaplain of what was then a polytechnic, I can remember going one day into the main dining hall and just chatting to some of the students. And the student I'd not spoken to before came up and he said, excuse me, padre, I thought, okay, yes. What is he, what? he said, can you tell me, is there another creed besides the Apostles' Creed and the other one? I said, yes, there's the Nicene Creed, but I think you probably meant the Athanasian Creed. And I hope for the life of me that he didn't want to know too many details about what was in it, because we hardly ever read it this day. And I couldn't understand why anybody in an institution that primarily taught business studies, engineering, and all sorts of technical subjects, what on earth has that got to do with the Athanasian Creed? So I said, yes, why do you want to know? Oh, he said, we're doing a crossword puzzle. I thought, wow, six years of theological education has come into its own and I can be an expert in something that somebody wants to know more about. So I went to the back of the hall and grew, sat with a group of students who were eating their lunch. And one by one they chatted and told me that they'd had some slight connection with the church in their childhood, but now they'd given it up, all of them had and they'd given it up for the very strangest and inconsequential reasons. I didn't like the new vicar, so I left, said one boy. My voice broke, so I left the choir, said another. Well, my friends started playing football on Sunday, so I followed them. 
So I got bored with it and took up other interests. But not one of them asked, is the Christian faith relevant? Is it important? Is it true? Does it matter? It was just, my life's changed a bit, so I've got another interest now, and I can't be bothered anymore. And that was quite a seminal moment in my life as a university chaplain, because it became a university later. Because it helped me ask the question, what is my major task here in this institution? And I had to see, I saw my job as helping students see that the kind of God they had rejected bore little or no resemblance to the living God in whom Christians believe. For it was only then that they would be ready to hear about the true God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ if they realised that what they'd rejected was a sham. It wasn't the real thing. For our God is not savage, vindictive, harsh or cruel, just waiting to pounce on us if we do something wrong. Nor is he a distant, inaccessible authority figure, totally out of tune with the compassionate, warm and welcoming figure that we see in Jesus Christ. Nor is our God some abstract philosophical explanation of the universe that's divorced from and irrelevant to our daily lives. And he's certainly not a figment of our imagination used to bolster our prejudices, fill in the gaps of our knowledge and justify our pettiness or cruelty. The God of the Bible and the God of Christian experience is the living Lord the creator and sovereign of the universe, the one who draws forth our love, our trust, our obedience, the one who challenges us and confronts us to be the best that we can be and calls us to hallow his name in all that we are and all that we do. It was the playwright George Bernard Shaw who said that God created us in his own image and we decided to return the compliment. Now, we may want to make God in our own image, but he's too big for that. And try as we might, we can never cut him down to size. Back in the 1950s, J.B. Phillips, well known for his translation of the New Testament, wrote a very influential book called Your God is too small. And more recently, John Young has written another one entitled, Our God is Still Too Small. The title alone reminds us that we still need to pray, Hallowed be thy name. So we need an understanding of God that reflects Jesus Christ. That is reality. That is truth. That is not a figment of our imagination. And the third way in which we can hallow the name of Jesus and hallow the name of the Father is when our lifestyle brings credit to the name that we bear. I became a Christian because other young people in our church had something attractive and I wanted it. Perhaps more people come to faith as a result 
of the positive example of Christian friends than for any other reason. The hypocrisy of some Christians turns others off. People need to see that our faith makes a difference. We need to show the attractiveness and power of the gospel in an age when so many regard the Christian faith as an irrelevance. In all things, to be faithful to God, we must walk the talk, practice what we preach, or others will, hear, will say, I can't hear what you're saying, because who you are shouts too loudly in my ears. The great Bible commentator William Barclay put it this way, if the Christian is just as likely to collapse under sorrow, if his life is just as frustrated and unsatisfied as the life of a non-Christian, if he's just as worried and anxious, just as nervous and restless, just as guilty of petty dishonesty, of self-seeking, of measuring everything by material values, as the person who makes no profession of Christianity, then quite clearly, no one will want Christianity because the obvious conclusion is that it makes no difference anyway. In other words, we must always walk the talk. He then emphasizes the point with a challenging quotation from Nietzsche, an atheistic philosopher who said, show me you are redeemed, and then I will believe in your Redeemer. So we hallow the name of God when we live our faith. And fourthly, that's a surprise, you're used to three points, so here goes. When our faith leads to the kind of radical discipleship that really does touch every part of our lives. To hallow the name of God demands action, not just words. If we reverence the name of God in our hearts, this must be reflected in our lifestyle, otherwise our prayers are devoid of integrity. It's no good saying, I love everybody, it's people I can't stand. There's an incongruity there. It just doesn't hold together. We need to move from the general principle to the specific outworkings of our faith, the implications of what we say and believe. Or as the hymn puts it, May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. So we must never forget that the God of truth and justice hates everything that goes against his nature. That he cannot stand the lies the insensitivity and injustice that taint and spoil the world that he loves. We are called always to a consistent Christianity. How on earth can we stress the importance of family values if we cheat on our partners or fail to give time to our children? How dare we praise the Lord of creation if we blatantly ignore the res our responsibility to care for the world he made? We don't hallow the name of God if we pollute the land by our selfishness and so hand on a damaged planet to the next generation. 
and we don't hallow the name of our Father if we ignore the needs of our brothers and sisters. How can we rejoice in God's plenty if we ignore the needs of those burdened with poverty and starvation, even if they do live on the other side of the world? For we only honour God and hallow his name when we seek to live in completely in tune with his perfect will. So four simple points. Our worship must hallow his name and reflect his glory. We need a Christian understanding of who God is. We need a lifestyle that's based on the life and example of Jesus and a radical discipleship that touches every part of human life. A few months ago, I, I wrote in my pastoral letter in the newsletter about Coventry Cathedral, a building that means a great deal to me. There's a canopy between the ruins of the old bombed cathedral that you go under and then into the modern 1960s uh, place of worship. It leads you from the sinfulness of a broken world and the dangers of man's inhumanity to man reflected in the bombed-out building into a church that just radiates the resurrection. In the guidebook, it puts it like this. To move from the bombed ruins into the new cathedral is to walk from Good Friday to Easter, from death to new life, from the jagged reminder of man's inhumanity to the soaring architecture that lifts the heart. And that's true. And if you're there for a service from Holy Communion, everything about the building actually speaks the gospel to you. You go forward to receive the bread and wine, and as you do so, you have right in front of you the magnificent uh, tapestry bearing a picture of Christ in majesty. We go and we bow before him, and there between the legs of Christ in majesty is a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And we kneel there to receive the bread of life, with our hands in the shape of the cross, and words ringing in our hearts and minds, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And we receive that bread of life and the cup of salvation. And then we turn round. And it's only when we turn round to go back to our seats that we can actually see the stained glass windows on either side. And all the colours come in from that stained glass to remind us of the glory of the new life, of resurrection faith. And then as we leave the church, we go through the wall made of glass with beautiful etchings of saints and angels and martyrs who are there to inspire us reminding us that we must take the resurrection faith back into the world. And then we go again into the ruins of the bombed-out cathedral. And as we walk around and see where the chapels of that old medieval building are, there's a plaque on the wall in each of those little chapels. And it simply says, Hallowed be thy name. And then it gives some area of human life in which the name of God needs to be hallowed and honoured. Hallowed be thy name in family life. Hallowed be thy name in education. Hallowed be thy name in peace and harmony. Hallowed be thy name in commerce and industry, 
in every aspect of life. May God's name be hallowed. For that is the way of holiness and the way of faith. And that is the heart of our belief. And it's only then, when we hallow the name of God, that we're able to move on in our prayers and say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that's for next week, when Simon Oliver will be preaching on that subject as a continuation of this series. Amen.